Thankful this morning to gather again with God's people. I trust that you are as well. This is a a very special part of the week for the Christian. We are with God. We have God with us all the time as Christians. We never go anywhere. We never have a waking moment in which, or for that matter, a sleeping moment in which God is not present with us and in which he does not hear us. But what a joy it is to gather as the body, to gather as a local church and to corporately, in our assembled corporate identity, to come before God, to pray, to listen to his word, to sing praises to his name. So praise God that we've been given this gift. Do we see gatherings like this as a gift? From the Lord, there's the temptation to just see this as routine, just another week, just another opportunity to come together and maybe see some people. But do we see this as God's gift to us this week to come together and worship Him? Two of the major themes of Genesis to which we have continually returned are faithfulness and faith. These These two themes we've constantly seen as we have walked our way through the book of Genesis. The faithfulness of God and the faith of his people. These two things go together. Where there is faith, there is faith in faithfulness. And where there is faithfulness, there is the response of faith. And so we've seen these themes woven together throughout the book. And in fact, we began... The story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You will remember we began this part of the story of Genesis, which really Genesis is largely the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So from chapter 12 onward, that's what we have. And we began this story, maybe you remember, with chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. And the title of that first sermon was The Faithful God and the father of faith. God graciously chooses and makes promises to fallen people. After Genesis 3, anything God does is grace, right? So Genesis 3, we deserve death. Adam and Eve deserved death. Abel himself deserved death. Everyone since Adam and Eve's fall deserves death. Death, But God graciously comes to such people, people like us, people like Adam and Eve, and he makes promises. He makes promises and he keeps those promises perfectly and perpetually. He makes a promise and he keeps it to a T. You know, as people living in this world, we recognize we make promises all the time. And and sometimes those promises are sort of 80% kept, maybe 90, 95% kept on a good day, maybe 20% kept or lower on a bad day. But God keeps promises 100% perfectly. And not just in a moment, but he does this perpetually. And the response of his people to this promise-making, promise-keeping, perfectly and perpetually, the response of God's people to this characteristic of God, the response of the people who have been met by his grace is faith. To trust his word of promise, to bank all on his faithfulness. One of the best descriptions of faith that I think we have in the whole Bible comes from Romans chapter 4. Maybe you have come across this recently. Romans chapter 4 verses 18 to 22. Paul is reflecting on the faith of Abraham and this is what he says. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver. Listen to this. No unbelief made him waver. 
concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In Hebrews chapter 11, from which we just read, Hebrews eleven thirteen, speaking of Abraham and Sarah and those people of God who had gone before them, says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar, having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words... The unrealized promises of God are received as absolutely certain. That's faith. We look out into the future. God has made promises to us that are unattained, that are unrealized. And we take hold of those unrealized promises as though they are 100% certain that is the meaning of faith. I have wrestled with this for a long time, particularly in my 20s. I wrestled with the assurance of my salvation uh, in in a very severe way. And I think that was partly because I had uh, prayed to receive Christ in a Baptist church at six years old and had lived very ungodly as a teenager and God changed my heart at 18. And so throughout my 20s, there was this intense struggle over the assurance of my salvation, and particularly one verse that was constantly a, a challenge to me that I just really could not get my head around was Hebrews 11.1. 1. Just wrestling with what is faith? Do I really trust God? Do I really believe? And Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I think if, if that verse in, in your past has been challenging or a little unclear to you, I hope that this one thing has happened. That at the bare minimum, traveling through Genesis with the fathers of faith, that you have been able to understand, which God has worked this into my own heart, that you've been able to understand what exactly is meant by that definition of faith that the writer of Hebrews so graciously gives us in chapter 11, verse One. So, do you have faith? This is a more substantive question than you may think. Because it is the case that we could ask many people, do you have faith? And immediately the mind goes to, well, yes, I believe in God. And and maybe it even becomes a little more specific. Yes, I believe in the Christian God. I believe in Christ. That, That Jesus Christ was sent by God. That he is God. Or maybe it gets a little more specific. And and you believe in a very nuanced understanding of the Trinity. Or you, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You believe that when he died on the cross, he paid for sin. And you would you would assent. To these things intellectually. You would find a proposition on a board. And you would say yes I assent to that. Check I believe it. But that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is what we just described. It's what we've seen. It's what we've lived with every day. As we've been walking through Genesis. It is this trust in the promises of God. That are unattained yet in our hearts certain. That is what it means to have faith. So I ask you, do you live in light of these certainties that are in and through Christ? A person who believes that he or she will be raised from the dead and live with Christ forever is a person who cannot help but to be transformed by that. It's a person who cannot help but to live differently In the face of death or cancer or live differently in the face of all sorts of trials or all sorts of temptations. Because these things are not mere hypotheticals. They are not mere propositions. They are certainties for me from a faithful 
God. Well, these two themes of faithfulness and faith come together again today in a particularly strong way as we come to Genesis 48. So if you would please go ahead and turn there. Genesis 48. And guys, I don't know if this is up uh, to the right volume. It, it might be, but if you just take, do a quick check on that. So Genesis 48, the title for the sermon this morning is The Blessing of the Adopted Sons. Genesis 48, in this chapter, at the end of his life, Jacob adopts and blesses Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So if you would go and stand with me for the reading of God's word, Genesis 48. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful And multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them, after them, shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand. And Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers and Abraham, my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. 
You can go ahead and be seated. Here we are, nearing the end of the book of Genesis, the two chapters only remaining after this. And we see so clearly faithfulness and faith. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it here before us, that we read it and we can understand it and explain it and and, and chew on it, meditate on it, God. We thank you that you have preserved your word for thousands of years. Your people, by your grace and by your providence, have preserved your holy word. What a treasure we have here before us. God, we ask that you would mercifully reach down to us in our plight, in our sinfulness, and that you would lift us up with great hope in Christ, with great hope in your promises that are yes in him. Father, we thank you for each other. We pray that our time this morning as we, uh, as we finish the service and as we have time together afterwards, that it would be sweet fellowship of saints, God, that it would be time of loving one another, of looking not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Father, we pray that you would remove from us, that you would dissolve the distractions of our hearts, Lord. We are all tempted to be thinking about other things, to be elsewhere this morning. Father, would you help us? We greatly need your help. I know I always do when I'm sitting listening to a sermon. Father, help us not to grow distracted. Help us to focus and to grow through this time, we pray. And God, we ask that you would be merciful to those among us today who are unsaved. Father, those who do not have this faith of which we speak. Lord, I pray that you would mercifully grant them to believe, that you would give them the gift of faith by a new heart, a heart that fears you and loves you and that pursues you, not a heart of our own making, but a heart that is a gift. Father, we pray that that would be granted today to new souls, those whom you chose before the foundation of the world in Christ. God, we pray now that you would go with us by your spirit and that this would be an edifying time for the believers. In Jesus' name, amen. So three things this morning to occupy our attention as we walk through chapter 48. Three things, the basis, the blessing, and the boys. So first, the basis. Let's look again at verses 1 to 7. And let's try to really get these verses in view as we seek to explain them and see what's present here in them. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty. These are the first words he says to his son. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered After them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. The scene is one of old age. And sickness. We've probably all experienced that in our lives as we have loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord. The last chapter, the last days, maybe even the last moments of life. A picture of frailty. In one sense, a picture of frailty and weakness. He is Ill. The text doesn't tell us what is wrong with Jacob, but we know that he is ill. He is nearing the end of his life. And we, we got this with Abraham and with Isaac. 
that this is also a sign of the special nature of this family, that God gives them this space at the end of life to direct the family, the covenant family, the holy family, the chosen family towards the future. And here we are at that moment in old Jacob's life. When Joseph gets word of his father's condition, he goes to him with his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph is probably anticipating what his father will do. I don't think he understands all that he will do. Clearly, as the narrative unfolds, he doesn't get what happens there. But some sort of blessing involving his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, some sort of blessing is what he expects to happen. What he anticipates. So knowing his father doesn't have much longer to live. He brings these two sons to him. These are the two sons. Born to Joseph in Egypt. Before Jacob arrived there in Goshen 17 years before. And so Joseph has other sons. But these are the first two sons. And they were born while Joseph was away. While his father Jacob thought he was dead. Several of you have asked me, in fact, I got a text this week from someone asking me about the switching back and forth between the names. And by the way, when I get texts like that, my heart just leaps and rejoices because if you're texting me saying, you know, why do we notice in the narrative that they go back and forth between Jacob and Israel? That means you're, you're paying close attention to the text of scripture. And so that's a wonderful thing. As a preacher, to hear people wrestling with these kinds of details. And I pray that, that we would all do that. That we would really look at the text and be attentive to it. But some of you have asked me about this interchange between Jacob and Israel. That sometimes he's called Jacob and, and sometimes he is called Israel. And while some commentators find significance in each of these occurrences, it seems to me that they are used interchangeably throughout to keep both in view for the reader, often without any obvious reason for the switch. So in other words, I don't know that I would advocate going through and looking, okay, what's the significance of the name Jacob being used here and Israel being used here and so on and so forth. But there does appear to be some significance here in verse 2. It says... And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. One commentator, Delich, says this, The interchange of the names is not everywhere so significant as here. Jacob lies down sick. Israel draws himself up. Another commentator, Kenneth Matthews, says, The mention of Israel suits the national implications of the blessing. In other words, what is about to happen is of national significance. Israel, as the father of this nation, is about to proclaim and declare a blessing from the Lord of heaven on these two boys. That will have implications for generations and generations and thousands of years to come. And so, the text reminds us that it is as the father of the nation that Jacob does this. And what we get in these opening verses is the basis for the blessing that will follow. Jacob, or Israel, starts his speech with God Almighty. El Shaddai, the name given to God as he appears to the patriarchs all the way going back to Abraham. That God is the mighty one. He can do all things. He is, as he says to Abraham, I am your shield. And as he tells Isaac, do not be afraid. And as he tells Jacob, fear not. He is God Almighty. And this is where Israel starts. He, you, you get this is He doesn't even say, hey, Joseph, how's your day going? There's no room here even for that sort of meaningless chat. This is solemn. This is significant. It is serious. It is national. It is cosmic even in its scope. And so he speaks as the father of the nation 
with God as the first word on his lips. And he recounts God's promises to him when he returned to Bethel in chapter 35. And so here we read in verse 4, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So here we go again. We get this constant refrain throughout Genesis, land and offspring, land and offspring. Of course, we know that the land and offspring ultimately are pointing towards the new heaven and the new earth in which Christ, the seed, the offspring will reign. So we have land and offspring constantly throughout. And here, Jacob begins talking to his son Joseph with the two, little, with the two boys present and he speaks about what God had promised him. This was God's blessing over Jacob. And it is the basis for the blessing he is about to give to Joseph's sons. He's not just giving them a blessing out of a vacuum. This is not merely a father blessing his children. This is the blessed man conveying a blessing on these two descendants. But there's another part. There's another part of this basis for the blessing, and it is adoption. Jacob adopts Joseph's sons as his own sons. In other words, these grandsons of Jacob are treated as sons. They are given a blessing as though they came directly from Jacob himself. So he takes Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandsons, and he elevates them to the same status as Simeon and Levi and Reuben and so forth. Adopting them as his own sons. First Chronicles chapter 5 verses 1 to 2, speaking of Reuben, says this. He was the firstborn. Remember Reuben, the firstborn of Leah? Which ignites the competition between Rachel and Leah bringing in Zilpah and Bilhah and all the craziness and drama that we got there with Jacob's family. Well, Reuben was the first. God opened up Leah's womb because she was the hated one. And God was merciful to her and her first son was Reuben. But First Chronicles 5, 1 to 2, reflecting on what's going on in Genesis says, he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, Remember, he slept with his father's concubine because he defiled his father's couch. His birthright, listen, was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. In other words, what the writer is saying is that of these 12 sons that were born to Jacob, Joseph the next to last, gets put as the firstborn. But not really Joseph. Joseph's two offspring, his first two offspring, get put in Reuben's place. Ephraim and Manasseh, not even sons. And sons of the next to last made the first here in this moment of blessing and inheritance. So the birthright moves to Joseph and therefore to his sons who are made sons of Jacob for the purposes of inheritance. Though Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, died before giving him any more sons, as he mentions in verse 7. Here, through this adoption, her sons are multiplied. Do you see the beauty of that? There's even a kind of honoring of Rachel, the beloved wife. That Rachel, she died prematurely, as it were. She, she died while giving birth to Benjamin. She had just Joseph and then Benjamin. But here it's as though Jacob multiplies her descendants by making Ephraim and Manasseh her children. So that's why we have the mention of Rachel. But before we go on to the blessing, I want you to consider what Joseph is doing. You may not have noticed this. It's incredible. What Joseph is doing in this moment is amazing. He is choosing to associate his sons with this shepherd family. You have to hear this. With this shepherd family rather than the palace court of Egypt. Remember who these sons are. 
These sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, these are the grandchildren of the priest of On, the most significant religious. Egypt, the Egyptians were probably the most religious people in the history of mankind. And here, the chief sort of center of Egyptian religion, On, has a chief priest, and that chief priest is the father of the one who marries Joseph. Meaning that these two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, being the sons of Joseph, elevated to the highest point in Egypt under the Pharaoh, and the grandchildren of the priest of On. Here Joseph throws all of that away, and he brings his two boys and says, I'm with this family. This is their future. Not the glories of Egypt. This is their future. This is faith. This is immense faith. It's incredible faith. Listen to what Kent Hughes says in describing this. Joseph's humble presence was itself an act of submissive faith because he had come to personally identify his boys with God's people. Such identification with the shepherd clan so abominated by the Egyptians. Remember, they hated shepherds. They abominated that. Such identification would ultimately shut them off to Egyptian prominence. What do you want for your kids, parent? You want them to go to a great college, drive this kind of car, live in this size house, make this kind of salary, have a nice, happy life for themselves. Joseph threw all of that away for his boys because he knew That what mattered for his boys were the promises held out by God. And that to associate and identify his boys with this family, though despised in the world, was to elevate them to glory, to heaven. What do you want, parent, for your children? You could say one thing in church, but what will they say of you later? What do you emphasize What do you make much of at home? Is it the glories of their education? The glories of their skills? The glories of their sporting? The glories of their talents? Or is it the glories of God and being found in his son? That is what we have here. The godly father who rips his sons out of all of that to be with this family. So let me ask this. How do you see the world? How do you see the world that we live in with all of its prominence, prestige, and pomp? With all that it has to offer, with all that it dangles before your eyes. The eyes of faith reckon it all very little. It's the eyes of faithlessness that reckon the world great. But the eyes of faith reckon it all so small. Which of us will ride on the golden chariot of Pharaoh? None of us. Even that kind of glory reckoned as nothing by Joseph. Because he knew that this God is faithful. And that brings us to our second point, the blessing. Look at verses 8 to 16. 8 to 16. When Israel... Saul, Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, 
the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Well, now we come to the blessing itself. We've seen the basis for the blessing that Jacob blesses as the blessed man and that he adopts them as his own and therefore blesses them out of that adoption. So we've seen the basis, but now we come to the blessing itself. But first, we consider the blessing in general. Not specifically with regard to the boys. We'll see that in a moment. But the blessing in general. The blessing over both sons as the sons of Joseph. Ephraim. And Manasseh are here formally recognized and brought close to Jacob so that he can see them and embrace and kiss them. And by the way, this is, this is a side note. It's not what the text is about. We certainly wouldn't want to make this text about this. But I think it's worth mentioning to fathers. Here we are getting a little window into uh, what it looks like to, to be uh, a father who is after the Lord, who, who belongs to the Lord. We're, we're getting a sense here for what, it, what, it, what family life looks like. And I just want you to notice those embraces and those kisses, right? Because maybe, father out there listening, maybe you did not grow up with a father who gave you many embraces and Kisses, But I think it's, it's worth noticing here the importance of fatherly affection and the importance that it has in conveying the significance of sonship. Often, fathers with sons can be hard and not embracing, and kissing them and loving them tenderly and gently. And here we see we have a window into what family life is among the people of God. And they, they come forward and he embraces them and he kisses them as his own. They are formally adopted here as his own sons. As Joseph removes them from his knee, bows before his father, and then presents them to him. This is a, a, a bit of a ritual. It's a bit of a ritual that, that denotes the adoption. Joseph is giving them to his Father, for the purposes of inheritance. Then Jacob puts his hands upon the two sons to bless them in the place of their father. And so verse 15, it says, and he blessed Joseph. By blessing his two sons, he is blessing Joseph. Now, remember how I introduced the sermon with faith and faithfulness woven together. We've already seen that in the first seven verses, we've already seen this, this working itself out. But here, it comes clearly into view. And I want you to see this really in, in three frames. So first, faith and faithfulness coming together. The heart of it is here in this second point, the blessing. So I want you to see this in three frames. The first frame, in the first frame, Joseph introduces his two sons. Listen to what he says in verse 9. They are my sons. And how does he describe them? Whom God has given me here. God. God gave Joseph these two sons. And quite apart from all of the significance that this has for Joseph the son tossed away and sold into slavery by his brothers. And all of the significance this has for the future nation. It's a reminder to us that every single one of our children is a gift from God. In a moment, we're going to do, in a little bit, we're going to do a, a child dedication with our, our membership covenants. And, uh, and we will we will. We will explicitly affirm the fact that children are a gift from God. So once again, let's just consider this. Parent, do you see your children as a gift from the Lord or as an imposition on your free time, as an inconvenience, as an irritant in your eye, or rather as the wondrous gift and blessing that each of them 
is. So we see these words of faith. It was God who did this for Joseph. Second frame, Jacob, after kissing and embracing the sons, says in verse 11, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Joseph's words of faith. God gave me these sons, dad, and Jacob's words of faith. I didn't even expect to see you. I thought you were dead. And now here I am looking at your two sons. This is incredible. It's an incredible note of gratitude. Notice that Jacob does not say, how could God, how could God let me live 22 years thinking my son was dead? How can this God be good? That's not what Jacob says. He says, praise God, I see your offspring. How often we are tempted in our carnality, in our fleshiness, in that principle within us that wars against the spirit to grumble against God no matter how many blessings he pours upon us to grumble against him for the slightest little tiniest inconvenience of life and yet here we see the man of faith 22 years he grieved but that's not what's on his heart what's on his heart is gratitude towards God this is faith In faithfulness. And then the third frame. There is the language of the blessing itself. Look at verses 15 to 16 with me again. 15 to 16. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel. There he's speaking of the angel of the Lord. God as he appeared to him. I think it's a a pre-appearance of Christ before he became man. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What beautiful words these are about the Lord. This blessing over the boys stretches backwards and forwards. It involves the past, present and future. The past we see back to Abraham and Isaac. The God before whom my grandfather and my father walked. And that language of walking before God takes us back even further to the descendants of Seth early on. Remember Enoch, he walked with God and God took him. And Noah, he was a righteous man in his generation. Noah walked with God. Genesis 6 Nine. This language brings us all the way back to the beginning. It also is language about the present. Jacob says, he has been with me as a shepherd to this day. In the present, with all the past preceding it, God is my shepherd. And then we see the future The vehicle through which the patriarchs' names will be carried on, as well as the nations that will come from them, will be through this blessing. The name will continue. But here's what I want you to see before we move on past this blessing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the language. Hear this. This is the language of The Christian life. Just in the set of these two verses, in the space of verses 15 to 16, we have this little nutshell theology of the Christian life. We are a shepherded, redeemed people who walk with God. In the patriarchs, we have little glimpses of what it looks like to walk in Christ, going back all the way to the beginning, because we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were saved by Christ, who would come in the future. They trusted in God's promises. They trusted in the promise of the seed that God had given to Adam and Eve. We are seeing here the nature of the Christian life. God is our shepherd. He has redeemed us. He has come to us in our plight. And he has ransomed us. He's he's purchased us back from our plight. And we walk always before his eyes. 
And all of this points to Christ. Because when Christ comes on the scene, he is called the good shepherd and the redeemer. Do you see that? That even here in the words of Jacob, as he's describing who God is and how he deals with his people, he is describing the work of the Christ. That the Christ will come and give, a, give his life as a ransom for many. And he will be called our redeemer. We will have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and he will call himself the good shepherd. Meditate on these words, for this is a little nutshell of what it looks like to live as a Christian, shepherded and redeemed before the face of God. Finally, we move to the boys. We've looked at the basis and the blessing Now we come to those last few verses as we look at the boys in particular. Verse 17 and following. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He, he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and, Manasseh, as, and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Since the words of blessing up to this point have been general in nature, on the boys together as a group, as the sons of Joseph. I have waited until now to discuss the crossing of Jacob's arms as he blesses the boys. As any father in that time and culture would be, Joseph is diligent to make sure that the firstborn, the eldest, gets the blessing. It's not that he cares less for his younger son, Ephraim, he loves them both. But, but it is the, the, the nature of the culture that the firstborn get the rights of a firstborn. That he receive the, the bulk of the inheritance. So Joseph is diligent to ensure that this happens. You see him arranging the boys and making sure that he presents the boys to his aging, nearly blind father in the right way. Putting them on the right side. So he puts Manasseh, the oldest, on his left side so that he will come underneath Jacob's right hand, which is the superior position. So Jacob, with his dim vision, does not need to look for which one is the oldest, but he he simply will put his hand out and there the boy's head will be. Manasseh, Ephraim, the right hand for the oldest. But then Jacob does something unthinkable. And what to Joseph is probably, and I think the text implies, is quite frustrating. All that work that he did. And then now uh, Jacob is going to go and cross his arms, crossing his hands, putting the right hand on the head of the younger son, Ephraim. So in verse 17... After Jacob's general words of blessing, we get Joseph's response. He seems to think that Jacob has made a mistake being blind. So dad just can't see. I'm going to make it right for him. Verse 10. It's said that the eyes of Israel were dim with age. And so it's probably in Joseph's mind, not intentional on the part of Jacob. Jacob's just gotten it wrong. And Joseph needs to make it right. But Jacob has not made a mistake. He has intentionally placed his right hand on the head of Ephraim. Joseph, not knowing this, goes to move his father's hand. I mean, he doesn't just say, Father, Father, can you switch those back? 
He, he grabs his, his father's hand to move it and put it back or put it on the other head. But the text says, very bluntly, Jacob refused. He held that hand exactly where it was. Verse 19, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. In other words, he's telling Joseph, look, your oldest son, Joseph, Manasseh, do not worry. He is blessed and he will become a great people. He will also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother, the one whom I have put my right hand upon, the younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And we find that later in the history of Israel, Ephraim's name will be associated with the entirety of the northern kingdom. You know that after Solomon, many years later, that the kingdom will be divided. Israel will be in the north and Judah will be in the south. So it'll just be one tribe in the south, Judah, and all the other tribes in the north. And there in the north, it will often be called Ephraim. Associating all of it with him. Verse 20 records the blessing. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. In other words, the Israelites know they are a blessed people as a whole. But within the camp of the Israelites, with, among the Israelites themselves, it will become a bit of a phrase, a blessing phrase. May God make you as these two in particular, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then the text says, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So as with Isaac, as with Jacob, as with Joseph, the younger will have preeminence. Why? We've talked about this before, but it's been a little while. Why is it that God in his ordaining, why is it that God in his providence has it that early on in the Bible, it is continually the youngest son who gets elevated to the highest place? Why is it that the youngest gets preeminence in this story? This biblical story, this God story. One commentator explains it very well. John Selhammer, this is what he says. This issue of preeminence is meant to address the larger question of who stands in a position to receive God's blessing. Throughout these narratives, receiving the blessing God offers does not rest with one's natural status or rights. On the contrary, that blessing is based solely on God's grace. The one to whom the blessing does not belong by natural right becomes heir of the promise. In other words, all throughout the Bible, God wants to stir up his people to look away from themselves and what they have innately or by right or by status. He wants to stir up all throughout the storyline of the Bible within his people this sense that it is not from me or of me. It is from God. In other words, by grace alone. Praise God for the Reformation. That rediscovery of the biblical gospel, the Pauline gospel. Praise God for that rediscovery emerging out of medieval Europe. That, that we find God by his grace alone. Not by our own merit. Not by anything within us. Christian, you did not earn, nor do you, nor do you deserve your position in Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. And notice that language too. It's interesting here. Christ ascends into heaven and he is seated at the right hand 
of God. He's called the firstborn over all creation. Now, some, some heretical groups want to say he's the firstborn, and that means there's a time when he came to be. No, 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 no. What the Bible is conveying in those moments is the same thing we have here in Genesis 48, that as the firstborn, he is the one who has the rights. He's at the right hand of the throne of God, the right hand, as he says to Caiaphas, of the majesty on high. And as the one on the right hand, All the inheritance goes to Christ. And therefore, all the inheritance goes to those who are united to Christ by faith through God's grace. Finally, as we close, in the last two verses, we see the beauty and brilliance of Jacob's faith in God's faithfulness. Look at verse 21 as we finish. Verse 21. Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And then to illustrate the reality and concreteness of this faith, Jacob actually gives Joseph a plot of land in Canaan that he took from the Amorites in some sort of skirmish that we don't read about in Genesis. And some people have associated this with Shechem because the word for slope is Shechem. And so is he's talking about Shechem itself, which his sons Simeon and Levi massacred. Or is he just talking about some sort of slope or hillside uh, in, in some unknown event that happened in Genesis or that we don't have recorded in Genesis? It seems like it's the latter. Some sort of skirmish in which Jacob forcefully took a patch of land from the Amorites. And here he is in Egypt. Dying, saying to Joseph with this kind of specificity, by the way, there's a slope. There's a slope there in Canaan, and it's yours. It's yours. I love what Calvin says about this entire episode of giving inheritance in Canaan to Joseph's sons. I love this quote. Listen to this as we finish. He says, what is this? Here is a decrepit old man assigning to his grandchildren as a royal patrimony a sixth part of the land that he had entered as a stranger and from which he was now an exile. Who would not have said that he was dealing in fables? What's this guy doing? He didn't even... Canaan wasn't even his home, and he's not there now, and he's given out land. But as Genesis has taught us from the beginning, Jacob was not dealing in fables, but in promises. Divine promises. Unshakable promises. From afar, holding them. As though they are certain now. This is what we are dealing in. Not fables. The world may laugh at our beliefs about the Lord. The world may think we are a silly bunch. But we are not dealing in fables. We are dealing in unshakable promises. From an unshakable El Shaddai. Hebrews 11.21 reflects on this episode When it says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is faith. This is worship. This is dying well. May each of us live and die trusting in the promises of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. Let's pray. Father, we praise your holy name. Lord, you are the keeper of your promises and the keeper of your people. As Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who is greater than all, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Yes, Lord, 
We have an enemy, but he is crushed and vanquished by the Christ. And we praise you this day, God, that we gather in the one who has been exalted to your right hand. We gather in the name of the one whose name is above all names, to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he alone is Lord. Father, we praise you that all of your promises are yes in Christ and are yes for us today and tomorrow. That we can face death. We can stare death itself in the face with joy because we know that there is a crown set before us because Christ had a cross set before him. We praise you this day, God, for your word. We ask that your spirit would cause it to settle well in our hearts, bring change, build us up into the head who is Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.